The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him. Condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Jebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want to do for we want you to do for us what we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it is for those who whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord, over, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Mark. We are in, the cha- we are in chapter 10. Um, you know, and I was really hit this week because we're in a somber section. This is a moment where Jesus Christ, everybody's been asking the question, who is this guy? Who is this guy? What can he do? What can he do? And Jesus now today for the third and final time, he's going to tell us who he is and why he came. And like the song we sang today, he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And we've been, and and this is a, it's a key passage for us and everything's going to really change after this week. We've been studying this life and ministry of Jesus in the gospel of Mark since January. And we're going to continue to study this until Easter. So we, we plotted it out for 2016. We're going to literally finish up the day of Easter. So Easter, we're going to be talking about the resurrection and we're going to take a little break for Advent, uh, five weeks or four weeks there or five weeks for Advent. Um, But we're going to be studying the life of Jesus the rest of the year and into until Easter. And the reason if you're new to, new to us this morning, the reason we're studying Jesus is because he is the most important person who's ever lived in the history of the world. No one has been and is as influential as Jesus. All of human history revolves around this one man. We have BC, right, which means before Christ, and AD, which means Anno Domini, which is year, means the year of our Lord. 
Jesus literally changed the world's calendar. There was time before Jesus, and now there's time after Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has been the greatest event in the history of the world. Going to Mars is cool, right? It's not going to change everything. Jesus changed everything. Therefore, if you don't understand Jesus, you don't understand life. And I know that's a bold claim. John Calvin wrote, in the first book of his Institutes of the Christian Christian Religion, that it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself, so man cannot know himself clearly, until he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating God to scrutinizing himself. What's Calvin saying there? He's saying until a person has met Jesus and has understood who Jesus is and where he came from and why he came to this earth, they'll never be able to understand themselves. Never. Acts 17, 28 says this. In him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. What's he saying? If you want to understand life, you have got to first come to understand Jesus. And today in our text, We're going to see both this problem and its solution. We see two of the disciples misunderstand Jesus and therefore totally misinterpret who they are and how they should live. So it's my prayer for us this morning that we would get a glimpse of God's face in the person of Jesus and then descend from that look at Jesus' face to kind of scrutinize and analyze ourselves. Calvin again says this, nearly all wisdom that we can possess that is true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourself. We cannot know ourselves until we look at Jesus. And in a sense, we cannot know Jesus until we take a long look at ourselves. As Becca read that text today, were you struck at all by the ignorance of James and John? Jesus talks about the cross, talks about crucifixion, talks about his death. And they're like, yeah, 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 but when you enter your glory, can I be on your right and can I be on your left? pretty interesting, isn't it? How off people can be, how hardened their hearts can be, how deceived their minds can be. Jesus explains to his disciples that he's on his way to Jerusalem, the place where he's going to be killed, and they seem to just shrug it off and ask for positions of power next to him in glory. See, they didn't understand Jesus, and therefore they didn't understand themselves. And they didn't understand themselves, so therefore they didn't understand Jesus. Now let's just jump into our text this morning. How, first off, how do you come to understand Jesus? And let me just tell you, first off, You can't come to understand Jesus except through the power of the Holy Spirit. But what does it look like? How do you get around Jesus? What does that look like? Let's just look. Let's just jump right in. Verse 32. Jesus is on the road. It says this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. How do you come to understand Jesus? Here it is. You follow him. 
How do you follow him? What does it mean to follow him? What is it? This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If you think there's this concept out there that you can be a Christian and that's something different from being a disciple, you're mistaken. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, is to be a follower, someone who walks with Jesus, someone whose life is shaped by their master, by Jesus. And this really hit me this week. What was the pace of Jesus? This one text, this isn't the, I hesitate to preach this because it's not the point of the text. It's a detail. It's a detour that I'm getting on, but I'm pulling it out because it's important to me this morning. And I think it it needs to be said to us. What was the pace of Jesus? He walked everywhere. There was other modes of transportation. Right? He didn't have a Vespa, but he could have had a little, he could have rode his donkey, right? He, he, he could have rode a donkey. He didn't. He walked. Now, what does that tell us about following Jesus? What does that tell us about discipleship? Following Jesus is a walk, it's not a sprint. The pace of discipleship is slow. It's a walking pace. We follow Jesus at a walk. Why? Our soul needs that. Our soul needs space. Our soul needs a pl- Our soul expands and contracts to the side, to as much freedom as it has, okay? If you've got, if you're busy and you're hurried all the time, your soul shrinks. That's why you, you can't think clearly. That's why you can't emotionally connect with people because you don't have time to do it. See, our soul shrinks and expands to the amount of space and time that we give it. That's why Jesus in the midst of a ridiculous schedule with people's healing hanging on the, in the balance, people who are lame and they need him, he had to leave them and go be alone with God. Why? Because even Jesus' soul would expand and contract and he couldn't live a life lived in communion with the Father at a breakneck pace. Our minds and emotions need to follow Jesus at a slow methodical pace. And this is opposite. I know you already know this. This is opposite of the world that we live in. We want things fast. We want a microwave discipleship. We want immediately to get over things that we've got in our life. We want immediately to grow up doesn't work that way. If you're in a missional community or you're leading a missional community, you want people to grow up like right now, right? Doesn't work that way. It it takes patience. Beware of a church. And, And I've felt pressured on this. Our church has grown fast, maybe too fast. Beware of a church that springs up and grows really fast because discipleship takes time. Weeds grow fast. Oaks take a lifetime, lifetimes to grow. Many of us have not matured much in our faith because our pace of life is not conducive 
to following Jesus. Jesus walks. When you're walking everywhere, you have really plenty of time. You have plenty of time to think. You have plenty of time to talk. You are unhurried. The, the, the trip here to, to, from Jericho, and we're going to see that next week, to Jerusalem is about 20, 25 miles, 3,500 3, elevation gain. It's a long, arduous, it's a slow journey. He's going to have plenty of time to talk, to meditate, to think through. It's going to be unhurried. Now, what does this mean for us? I think it means we need to shut off our phones more. I think it needs we need to unplug and leave our phones on the counter when we come into the house. We need some unhurried time to read our Bibles and to think and to pray and to let our souls breathe. I think we need to limit the activities our kids are involved in so we aren't running all the time. Our culture is crazy. Let them be crazy. Don't follow them in the craziness. Your soul will shrink. I also think that we need to reevaluate our idea of spiritual growth, right? Our idea of even the church. What would it look like or how would our idea of community change if we thought of it as a long walk together? A long walk, like it'll take your life, Right? This is the way of Jesus. He's walking. He's living amongst them. And here's another reason. We need to adjust our lives to a walking pace. Where are Jesus and his disciples headed? Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Suffering. Suffering cannot be understood It cannot be entered into and processed while running. If your friend gets cancer, if you're going to love them, if you're going to be there for them, you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to phone it in at work. You're going to have to cancel the golf game or, 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 you know, slow down on some of the hobbies If your friend gets cancer, if you're going to enter into it with them, you got to enter in that pace of life, which means just sitting in the waiting room, doing nothing. And that's something for some of you. Like you think, I need to do something all the time. How about just sit and just be and just suffer with? See, this is why we need to slow down our pace. Suffering with someone Even if Facebook does give us this little dislike button, suffering with someone does not mean disliking their post, sad face. Suffering with means being emotionally present with someone, feeling the weight of it, having it affect you. This is what it means to be a human being. You have to walk with them. So it is with Jesus. If you want to understand him and you want to understand your own life, you got to walk with him. It's going to take a long time. It's not sexy. It's not fast. It's not cool. It's just not cool. It's real though. And it's what we've been all been called into. Let's look at verse 32. 
or the first 34, I'm sorry, or where am I at? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Guys, the details in Mark are just striking. Jesus is headed to his crucifixion. And where's he at? He's not kicking rocks in the back of the group. He's leading the way. Luke tells us his face is set like flint. Jesus knows he's going there to die, and he's leading the way. Jesus is a man's man. We have a lot of first responders here in our church, a lot of EMT and paramedic and, and, and firemen and women and, and police officers who, who rush into harm's way. Jesus was a man's man. Jesus was a man who, in the face of his death, didn't back down, didn't balk at all. He steps boldly and confidently right into it, and it just set on me this week. And look what he says. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And they were amazed. This is blowing their mind. They don't understand why Jesus is so focused on going to this place. And those who followed were afraid. Some of the followers were afraid. Why is Jesus headed there? Why is he so intent? Why is he so focused? And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Verse 33, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that's him, he's, that's his favorite Old Testament term uh, to use about himself. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, that's the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they will condemn him to death. He'll be condemned, means he's going to have a trial, and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus says here that this is the first time, guys, this is the third time he's announced his death. He's, pre he's told them what's going to happen in the future, right? He's told them, I'm going to die, but this is the first time he's really gotten specific and he's told them where it's going to happen and how it's going to happen and who's going to do it. Jesus says that the Jewish leaders will condemn him to death. That means they're going to have a trial. And they're going to convict him, and then they're going to turn him over to the Gentiles. That's Pontius Pilate. The Pharisees and scribes wanted to execute Jesus, but they couldn't do it legally, so they had to hand him over to the Romans. Jesus says, they will mock me, they will spit on me, they will flog me. That means whip and scourge him. They will kill me, and after three days, I will rise. Now, I'm going to do something different. Instead of just going verse by verse like I normally do, I'm going to jump to the end of this scripture this morning. I'll come back to this text, but let me ask you this question. First off, we, let's look at verse 45. Let's read verse 45. For even the son of man came, that's his favorite term for himself again, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. We, we got some important things here. The Son of Man came, Jesus says. Where did he come from? Jesus says uh, in the Gospel of John over and over and over, Jesus says, I came from heaven. I came from the Father. I came from God. And in verse 
45, for the first time in the gospel of Mark, Jesus tells us why he came, right? He came proclaiming the gospel, but why did he come? Verse 45 says, Jesus came to serve and to ransom. Now, what does that mean? We're going to dig down into this a little bit this morning because it's a term that most of us sing about, most of us have some kind of understanding, but we don't really know what it means to ransom. What is a ransom? A ransom is a payment given in exchange for the release of someone held captive, right? If someone's taken prisoner, we pay a sum to get them out of captivity, right? Now, when we think of ransom, we think someone being held hostage. But in Jesus' day, the word had a lot wider usage. If, here's the deal. We have this, I don't want to say great thing. We have this thing in the United States that if you run up your credit cards and you, have, and you can't pay your debts, you file bankruptcy, and just miraculously, these debts just disappear in, in thin air, right? Well, in Jesus' day, they didn't have something called bankruptcy. And if you could not pay your debts, you sold yourself into slavery. You became, your, you became the servant, the slave of your master, your creditor. So that means when you don't pay Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo locks you up and you are their slave until you've paid off all of your debt. Okay, but if let's just say you got a rich uncle and your rich uncle comes up and you are enslaved to Wells Fargo, you cannot pay them back. You are in, you are uh, working your life away for them. You have a rich uncle. He comes up. He can do three things. He can be a mediator and he can come between you and Wells Fargo, and he can say, hold on, what, what are the terms of the contract? What happened? Okay, let's figure this all out. Let's work something out. He can be your mediator, and then he can be your redeemer. That means he would, I'll, 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 we'll figure it out. I'll pay it. I'll pay the ransom price to get him out of slavery. Okay, so you've got a mediator that plays in between the two parties, right? The party that you owe and the party that owes, and then you have... Um, a redeemer who will actually pay the price. And then third, you have a ransom, which is the actual cost. You owe $27,000 to Wells Fargo. Okay, that's the price. So in in Jesus' day, you had three things. You had to have a mediator that come between the creditor and the debtor. You had to have a, a redeemer who would, somebody that would step in and pay it. And then you had to have a ransom, the actual Money to pay the price, right? To pay the cost. And in verse 45 here, Jesus says, he has come to this earth. He left heaven and came here to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, I have come to pay off your debts. I have come to set people free by paying their ransom. Now, this should beg the question here. Who's he talking about? Who's enslaved? Who's in debt? And who are they in debt to? And what's the price of this indebtedness? What do they owe and who do they owe it to? 
Why does this, who needs to be ransomed and why do we need to be ransomed? Now the Bible teaches us that every single human being that's been born of a woman because of Adam and Eve has been born into slavery. We've been born as slaves of sin. And sin makes us debtors to God. See, God is our perfect, loving, heavenly father who's created us and give us every good thing to enjoy. And when we sin against him, we're going into debt with God. We should live our lives happy and holy in honor of him and glorifying him and building great things to worship him. That's how we should live our life. But we live our life selfishly. We live our life in rebellion to him. And every sinful thing we do, we go further and further and further in debt with God. We owe God our perfect love and obedience, but since we have failed him over and over and over, we have a huge debt to pay him. Think about it like this. The Bible really talks about sin in two ways. It talks about sin of commission. We, everybody knows this. Stuff you do that you're not supposed to do, right? Lie, cheat, steal, whatever that is, right? We, we know that. Sins of, think about it this. Every time you sin, you're swiping the credit card. You're rebelling from God. You're going further and further into debt. Your sins are getting deeper and deeper and deeper, right? Your indebtedness is going up. Every time you sin, you're swiping the credit card. But here's the shocking thing. Scripture also talks about sins of omission. That means when we fail to love someone, it's a sin. When we think I should pray for that person and we don't, I should call that person and we don't. I should make a meal for that person. I don't. I should help that person. I don't. That's a sin of omission. And so every time I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I'm swiping that credit card one more time. And for those of you who you went to college and you, you thought it was so cool to go to college and you go to your mailbox and the first thing you do, you open up, you have a mailbox for the first time and you open it up and day one, you got the credit card thing right there, right? And you open that bad boy up and you fill it out and you send it back in. You don't read any of the fine print that it's got 762% interest and they send it back to you and you start swiping pizzas left and right. We need a new video game. This is a need, right? Every time you swipe it, you go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt and then you pay the $18 monthly payment, Right? And you get it the next month, and somehow it's doubled, right? And then the next month, it's tripled. And it goes on and on and on until you get to the point where you have to call mom or dad, right? And they're going to need to bail you out. Listen, Jesus is saying here, our sin is the same way. In a sense, God is our creditor. We owe him, and we've been sinning and swiping that credit card, and we've been going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. Now, if our sins, right, are taking us deeper and deeper into debt, to, and God is our creditor, how, how are we to pay off that balance? 
I'll tell you how I thought it happened. When I first came to Christ, I thought God forgave me. So when I was 18 years old, God forgave all of my sin. Whoo, thanks for that. And I start over. God's a God of second chances. Well, that second chance lasted about an hour and a half, I think. Because then I sinned again. And oh crap, now what? I owe him again. How do I pay that off? And then on and on and on it goes because sinning never stops. We never cease to sin. So how does God pay off our debt? Or how do we pay off our debt to God? It's not just forgiveness because we're going to sin tomorrow and we're going to sin in an hour from now. We need future grace. Well, here's what you're going to need. Think about how they worked out a ransom back in the day. You're going to need three things. You're going to need a mediator. And think about a mediator because a mediator represents both parties, right? So humans and God. We need a mediator who is both God and human, right? Who gets the human condition who understands suffering and pain and difficulty in this world, but we also need somebody who has God's best interest in mind, who understands the glory of God and the holiness of God and how ugly sin is. Well, it just so happens that Jesus is that mediator. He's both God and man, so he can perfectly mediate for us. He can be the middleman and work out a deal for us to deal with our sin. Secondly, you're going to need someone to pay off your debt. You need a redeemer. You need somebody that's going to go, yep, he owes 27000 I got it. Put it on my tab. I'll pay it. So we need a mediator. Jesus is the one who steps in between God and says, how much do they owe you? And God says, an infinite cost is what they owe me. And Jesus says, do we have anybody down there that can pay that? Any redeemers, please stand up. Any redeemers that could pay this infinite cost, please come forward. Psalm 49, 7, 8 says this, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. So when Jesus looks for a redeemer, he's the mediator. He looks for a redeemer. None can be found because every man owes their own debt. Every man, woman, child is in debt to $27,000 and can't pay for somebody else's debt because they can't even pay for their own. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, I will be not only the mediator, but I'll be the redeemer. I'll pay the price. But the third thing we need you're going to need a ransom. You need this exorbitant amount of wealth to pay the cost. For my analogy, you need $27,000, but Jesus doesn't, but our sins are so much bigger than that. The debt that we owe to God is so much bigger than that. Jesus doesn't say, well, I need a loan, God. Reach down into your riches, into your storehouse. Send me some of that heavenly money down here. Let me pay for this person to be delivered. What's the cost? What's the ransom? Jesus says here, it's his very life. It's his blood. It's his extinction. 
Jesus is all three. He's our mediator. He's our redeemer. And he himself is our ransom. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus came from heaven to earth to serve as our mediator. He's the God-man. He's the only person who is both God and man and can serve as a perfect mediator representing both parties. But he isn't just our mediator. Jesus is also our redeemer. He is going to pay off our debt to God. But Jesus isn't just our mediator and our redeemer. He's also our ransom. Jesus gives his life for us. You're standing before your creditor. They're going to take everything from you, including your life. And Jesus says, no, take mine instead. He gives his perfect life for our sinful life. He pays our debts. So, this tells us so much about who Jesus is. He's the son of God from heaven. He came to earth to ransom people who were held captive by their sins and sitting under the just wrath of God. And he wasn't just the person who would negotiate their release. He was also their substitute. He was the mediator, the redeemer, and the ransom price itself. And scripture tells us that God was not overreacting here. The death of the sinless son of God was the only ransom that could be paid to free sinners from the wrath of God. See, sometimes we have this unbiblical idea of forgiveness and we think, why couldn't God, people say this all the time actually, God can do anything. Why couldn't he just forgive people? That's not how forgiveness works. If you've ever had a child or you've ever had a friend really hurt you, really damage you, you know to forgive them costs you something. You don't just blow it off. Oh, I've forgiven you. You have to pay the debt yourself. You have to feel the pain yourself. You have to absorb the wrath yourself. Forgiveness always costs us something. Jesus and God couldn't just, oh, I just forgive them. can't do it. The suffering has to go somewhere. The pain has to go somewhere. And Jesus says, put it on me. So we see all this about Jesus. But like I said in the beginning, if we're really going to know Jesus, we've got to know ourselves. And what does this text, what does this idea of ransom tell us about ourselves? If you've spent much time examining your heart, you might already know this. We truly are slaves of sin. We're imprisoned. We can't help but sin. Scripture teaches us even our good works have traces of sin in them. I mean, sometimes... 
we make a dinner for somebody, not because we love them and we want to serve them, but because we're, we're ashamed of what would it look like if we didn't do it. If I don't volunteer to make a meal, somebody's going to ask me why I didn't volunteer to make a meal. Then I'm going to have to tell them because I'm selfish and I didn't want to. Right? On and on and on it goes. Even our good works are infested with sin, and therefore, listen to this, for those of us who think, I know what I'll do, God has forgiven me of my past sin from now on, I'm going to work really hard, and I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to replace all my bad deeds with good deeds where I was immoral before, now I'm going to be moral, I'm going to love God, and I'm going to move forward, I'm going to do this thing. Problem with that, even your do this thing, even your worship of God, even though even your discipleship, even moving forward has traces of sin in it. So while you're making that deal that dinner to bless somebody, you're still swiping the card. Your good deeds, Isaiah tells us, are like filthy rags in God's sight because they have just that's how weird our souls are. We've got so much sin going on. Sometimes we're doing things just so people look at me and people love me more. And so even my good deeds are swiping the card and taking me further and further and further into debt. This is why Jesus didn't come to give us good advice on how to get out of debt. Thank you, Dave Ramsey. That's not what Jesus did, right? Practically, we might need some good advice to get out of it, you know, monetary debt. Spiritually, good advice won't help us because the more moral you are, the better person you are, the more secretive your sin is, the more silent it is, the more deadly it is. It's like carbon monoxide filling your house. You don't even know it and it's poisoning you because your good works are blinding you to the reality that you're still a slave of sin. This is why good advice can't save anyone. Be a better person. Try harder at being good. Read your Bible enough. Pray enough. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps and try again. Trying harder, being better, cannot pay a ransom. It just takes a person deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. But thankfully, Mark chapter 1, Jesus doesn't come to bring us good advice. He comes to bring us good news. The gospel is what he calls it. Jesus, the perfect son of the father, came to this earth to ransom slaves and set them free. Jesus dies to satisfy Please hear that word to satisfy the wrath of God. All the wrath that was set against us because of our sin, Jesus satisfies it. Why was God so angry? I don't, have, I don't like this angry God. This is why God is so angry because love gets angry. That's what love does. Did you not know that? I love my wife. Smack her and see what happens to you. Don't really do that. But my love for my wife looks like a punch in the throat to you if you smack my wife. That's what my love for my wife looks like. 
right? If you sin against someone that I love, my wrath is my love for my wife, but it's wrath towards you because you've sinned against her. The same thing with God. The sin, he, he is love, so when you sin against him or you sin against his church or you sin against his people, his love looks like wrath. It looks like anger. And that wrath needs to go somewhere. And if you've ever been victimized, if you've ever been victimized, you know. And sometimes we don't like an angry, wrathful God. We don't like a God who punishes because we live in America and we've never suffered. But if you grew up in Somalia where you've seen your whole, village, your, your whole village raped and massacred, you know the wrath of God is a hope that these people, that they're going to get what's coming to them. That's what God's love looks like when, it's, when it hits injustice. It looks like wrath. It looks like wrath. And when God, Jesus, God has been offended God has been sinned against. God is our creditor and we owe him everything. And Jesus Christ, the son of God, steps in between us and says, don't pour your wrath out on them. I know that's what you owe them. That's what your love is going to look like. Don't do it. I will be the redeemer. I will be the ransom. I will be the mediator. Pour it out on me. And God says, yes, I'll do it. And God pours out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And then God says, I'm satisfied. What does that mean? That means if you are in Christ, if Christ has forgiven you, there is no wrath of God towards you at all. It's been fulfilled. It's been satisfied. He never gets angry at you. He was angry with Christ for you. He is pleased with you. He is happy. You don't have to work hard to put a smile on his face. He's satisfied in you. Jesus was the all-sufficient sacrifice. So that's why Romans tells us there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was condemned. In my place he stood. Condemned he died. This is why we need to know ourselves before we will ever really know Jesus. Until we see ourselves as a helpless slave to sin, imprisoned and in debt to God, we will never be able to see Jesus as our all-sufficient ransom and savior. See, most of us, we don't think we're in debt to God. Or if we do think we're in debt, we think it's like, we're just expecting minimum payments. I can get myself out of it. I can get myself out of it. I'm almost there. A little more Bible reading, a little more commitment, a little more good works. just working hard all the time, slaving away, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. And people like that, they don't get Jesus as their all-sufficient savior and ransom. They don't get the freedom that comes from the gospel. 
My debt is paid. My chains have fall off, fallen off and I'm free to worship God. But unfortunately, like James and John here, we often see ourselves, instead of slaves to sin, we see ourselves as worthy recipients of power and prestige rather than slaves justly condemned to die for our sins. And what does that lead us to do? Treat Jesus more like a politician than the savior of the world. Like verses 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, this is two out of three Jesus' fight club. This gives me hope. <clears throat> And Peter is the eyewitness here. Peter's the eyewitness. So that rounds out Jesus' fight club, okay? Jesus' inner working of disciples. Uh, and this is what it says here. James and John, the sons of David, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, this is just a humble request. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, I'm going to be honest. My kids do that to me. Dad, I want you to say yes to whatever I'm going to tell you right now. No. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They're walking. This conversation pops up. And they said to him, two of his closest disciples, grant us. You know, I, I, I'm tempted to make light of this and to joke about it because it can be used and we can laugh at it. But please, you're walking on the way to Jerusalem, where Jesus will be crucified, you just tell your closest people, your fight club, I'm headed into some real difficulty. We're all headed into some real suffering here. I'm going to be crucified, handed over, betrayed, beaten. And all they heard was Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. That's where the king gets coronated in Jerusalem. They have delusions of grandeur. Jesus is having a, a, a theological vision of the cross, and they're having visions of glory. What do they say? Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And that's the cup of suffering. Or to be baptized with the baptiz baptism which I'm to be baptized, which is his death. And they said to him, we're able. They don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. They will both drink deeply of the cup of suffering. James will be the first martyr. John will be imprisoned on Patmos and write the book of Revelation and die. He'll be the last of the apostles. He'll watch all the apostles die. I don't know who, what's worse, to be James, the first apostle that's martyred, or to be John who watches everybody die, and you're the last one. You will be, Jesus says. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, Peter's among them. They began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. What does that mean? It means this, the world 
rules and power and authority and manipulation and maneuvering and posturing. That's how the world moves. You want to get ahead? Have a good Facebook profile. You want to get ahead? Hire a good marketing firm. You want to get ahead? Lie. Keep your cards real close. Manipulate, domineer, take advantage of those under your rule, under your authority. Jesus says that's how the world operates, not how the kingdom operates. The kingdom is different. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Not so, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That's the, de- that's the word diakonos, where we get deacon from. And whoever, must, whoever be first among you must be slave of all. And then he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's easy for us to kind of dismiss these guys as fools, right? How could they not get it? How could they not get it? Listen, that's the wrong response. Anytime we're responding like that, that should actually be a warning sign to us because the correct response is, I wonder where I'm missing it. Because I think we're a lot like James and John. We expect glory not suffering, so we're really shocked and offended when any type of suffering shows up to us. We want to use Jesus to get a better life. We want to add Jesus to our lives, and we don't want him to take anything away. I want Jesus and a comfortable life. So as James and John are walking with Jesus, they aren't contemplating his death They're thinking about their career. They want to use Jesus for their own glory. They're thinking, I want to be on his right and on his left. I want to be the prime minister and the secretary of state when you enter into your kingdom. They're thinking Jerusalem is going to be good for us. They don't understand Jesus and therefore they don't understand themselves, and they don't understand themselves. They didn't need a king, an earthly political king, right? They didn't need a new career. They didn't need more power. They needed a savior. They needed a ransom. They needed a redeemer. They needed a mediator, but they didn't see themselves as slaves of sin, and so they weren't looking for a savior. I'm afraid many of us are the same way. We think we need a life coach, Jesus, be my life coach. Jesus, be my friend. Jesus, be my husband that I don't have. Jesus, be the girlfriend that I don't have. Jesus, be whatever it is I don't have. You don't need that. What you need is a savior. You need a redeemer. You need a ransom. You need a mediator. I think it's our great danger this morning. We don't examine our own hearts. Sense our own spiritual bankruptcy. We don't come to the realization that we can never, ever pay God back the debts that we owe him. We will never look to Jesus 
the way we should as our mediator, as our redeemer, and as our ransom. Tim Keller noted, it's striking that when Jesus, that what they ask him, when you come into your glory, let me be on your right and be on your left. And Jesus, when he's at the height of his glory, when he's on the cross, dying for sinners as our ransom, there's a criminal on his right and there's a criminal on his left. Jesus was the slave of all. Jesus was the servant of all. Some of us this morning, as I close, some of us, we got two types of people, really. One, those who don't know their debt. You don't know that you owe God love and affection and obedience because he's your creator. And so you've rebelled from him. And, and I just need to know, I just want you to know, this morning, you're getting the bill. Like, you've been, maybe you've, you've never heard this before, and, and the bill shows up on your front, is showing up right now on your front step, and you owe him everything. You're in debt up to your eyeballs. You will never repay him. There is no going bankrupt. There's two options for you. One, your debt goes to Christ, and he pays it for you, and you get freedom. Freedom! Or two, your debt comes due upon your deathbed. And that debt will be paid for eternity in hell, separated from God. Or there's a second type of person in here, and you know you're in debt. You've grown up your whole life knowing you're in debt, but, what you, but you constantly feel indebted, and therefore you have this inner voice that always tells you, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. Read more, pray more, give more, serve more. And it, it, you wouldn't vocalize this necessarily, but you feel like you're working really hard trying to earn your way out of debt with God. You're really trying to pay him back. You maybe even said, he's forgiven me of my sins, but now I'm trying to pay him back. And I'm just going to say two things. One, you don't understand how in debt you are. And you're going further and further and further in debt every day. And two, you don't understand how sufficient the payment was that Christ paid. He perfectly paid the price for every single person on the planet's sin that will confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Christ paid for them, therefore they are forgiven because the debt's been paid. If you go to God and you say, I, I need to pay off, he's going to look at you and be like, you don't owe anything. It's all been paid. It's all been paid by Christ. And that's one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper every single week. Because this reminds us Jesus stood between us and God. Actually, he hung between us and God as our mediator. And he worked out a deal on our behalf and he said, my flesh for their sin. Think about it. A mediator sits down and he slides the money across the table. Will this be sufficient? The debtor looks at it and counts it and says, yes or no. 
Jesus hangs on the cross as our mediator, as our redeemer, as the ransom price itself. And God the Father, you know what he does? God the Father says, yes, absolutely, this was enough. How do we know it was enough? Because three days later, he was resurrected. Three days later was God's stamp of approval saying, debt is paid once and for all. Payment accepted. You are free forever from eternity past to eternity present. Your sin is no longer counted for you. It's counted on Christ. Grace alone through faith faith alone in Christ alone. And we come to this table this morning for that purpose. And when you take it in your hands, know you're taking the payment. You're receiving the ransom. Christ paid for us on our behalf. And people who know that, accept that, believe that, and then they live differently. They live differently. And I pray that would be us. Father, every other religious leader, when they're asked, why did you come? They say, to teach. They say to point the way. When Jesus is asked, why did you come? He says, I came to pay a ransom. We have the answer that the world is looking for. It's your son given on our behalf. We thank you, Father. This world is hurting. This world is dark. This world needs your son. They need to know the ransom's been paid. Would we turn from our sin this morning, turn from our unbelief, believe in you, and would we take the sacrament this morning, putting in our hands and in our mouth the ransom? And Father, would we leave from here today worshiping, thankful, ready to tell others that the ransom's been paid. God is happy. God is happy because of Christ. What joy it is. What hope it is. Father, I thank you for your spirit. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Father, we thank you for orchestrating it all and planning it all and even having the person set on the right and the left of Jesus. You already have it ordained. You already know who it is. You're in control of it all. Put our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.